Hello everyone, welcome back to this week's episode of the Marie Keating Foundation Talks Cancer podcast. Last week, we introduced you to dermatology neurospecialist Celine Daly, who is joining us again today. And we spoke about what melanoma is, the role of the dermatology nurse, and we shared some of our own not-so-sun-smart habits that we used to practice before we knew better. This week, we are delighted to be joined by our long-term friend of the Marie Keating Foundation, consultant dermatologist, Dr. Patrick Ormond, to discuss his role in a melanoma journey and when a patient will see him. So welcome, Patrick. We're delighted to have you here today. So I suppose the first question we should ask is, can you explain what a dermatologist is? Well, thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here as, as always. So a dermatologist, firstly, is a doctor. So they are a qualified medical professional. And then you specialize, uh, once you've qualified in medicine, in dermatology. And that's a usually four to five year specialist training post, which occurs after your general medical training. So they've usually done at least three years of sort of general medicine, what's called your basic specialty training. And that's through usually the Royal College of Physicians in Ireland or through whichever is your local professional body. And then you go into training or you apply for a training post and you train then in dermatology. In Ireland, currently it's five years and that's on top of your medical training. So that's the most important thing to remember that when you go to see a dermatologist, make sure that they are appropriately trained. And that's very easy to do. You can check it for example, in Ireland, you check it on the Irish Medical Council website and they'll be on the specialist register for dermatology. So that's what, and you can do that with any specialist, oncology, plastic surgeon, whatever. So that's that's the first thing. So they are doctors and then they are trained specifically in dermatology. And a lot of other doctors have interests in dermatology, but they wouldn't necessarily be dermatologists. Okay. And that's an important message for people, I think, isn't it? Yeah, very important. Very important that you know who you're going to see and all that information is there and available for you. Probably the best person is your own general practitioner, your own family doctor. They will, they'll know, you know, who to send you to and where to send you to and what's appropriate for you. So through your general practitioner is always a really good source of advice and direction. Are there plenty of dermatologists in Ireland? Uh, actually, we have one of the uh, lowest number of dermatologists in Ireland relative to our, our neighbours in uh, throughout Europe. And that's something that is slowly changing with the sort of requirements of a population that is a becoming older because uh, melanoma and indeed all skin cancers are more common in the elderly but also people's awareness is very much improved so we know you know people are aware now that they need to look at their skin and they need to check their molds that's where we, a lot of public education public sort of drives to get people in and because it's it's interesting to know that actually 60 percent of melanomas around about 60 percent of melanomas are actually picked up by the patient themselves so they've noticed it and that's a really the important thing to remember that the vast majority of people they notice it themselves and we're so used to sort of other cancers looking for the lump in your breast or blood in the stool or any of the or, you know an ongoing cough that these are signs you look for and the skin is about the only thing that we have that you can actually look at every single day if you want to i often say that we should know our skin as well as we know our wardrobes. That you may not know every single detail that's in your wardrobe if I asked you to describe it. But if I took something away or I added something in, eventually you'd be you'd say, oh, hold on, what's that? And that's how familiar we should all be with our skin. That we know approximately what it's there and what's not and, and how things change and age as well. Because of course we all change and age. I often say to people, the nose that you're born with is not the nose that you have when you're 20 or 50 or 70. So things will change and alter. And it's knowing what is normal change and alter and then what is abnormal change and alter. Yeah, that's a great message. And we all relate to our wardrobe. So great message. 
I love the analogy with the wardrobe. I have to say it's something we can all relate to. Um, so I'll kick off with the, uh, I suppose, one of the most important questions. What causes melanoma? So melanoma, like, uh, like all cancers, is caused by lots of different things. I like to use the analogy of any cancer being a light bulb, but instead of having one switch for the light bulb to go on, you have a number of different switches. And some of those switches we are born with on and those would be your genetics susceptibility to develop certain types of cancers. And then we have the switches that are turned on by our, our environmental factors. And those are things that we do and then our own behaviors. And that goes across all types of cancer. So in melanoma, we know that probably the, the one external force, which is most important, is ultraviolet radiation. And we confuse sunlight with uh, an ultraviolet radiation. And I think knowing exactly what your, your sunlight composes of is really important. So there's ultraviolet, which is UVA, B and C. And C is predominantly screened off by the ozone layer, by the atmosphere. And then there's UVA and UVB, and both are cancer causing. So that's the ultraviolet radiation. But we are designed through evolution to, uh, to be exposed to ultraviolet radiation. Um, and then there's finally infrared radiation. And that's the heat, if you like, of your sunlight. And that's one of the, the things I like people to remember is that the radiation levels, say, for example, in Spain, and the, that's the ultraviolet radiation levels in Spain and the ultraviolet radiation levels in Ireland in the middle of the summer are approximately the same. The difference is the heat in Spain is higher and we tend to correlate heat with the amount of ultraviolet radiation. That's what we think, but actually that's not the case. And that's why it's so important to remember that actually that ultraviolet radiation may not necessarily be linked to the amount of heat. If you're out, you're getting ultraviolet radiation. Yes, in a winter's day, it's a lot less than it would be in a summer's day. That ultraviolet radiation is always there, no matter where in the world you are. A lot less in the winter, particularly UVB, and a lot more and a lot more concentrated in the summer. So um, a lot more concentrated in the middle of the day. And ultraviolet radiation and being outdoors and having a healthy lifestyle is really important. So it's learning how to, to manage that um, environmental risk is important. And that's where our behavior is, if you like, the last of the things that can turn your switches on to turn that light bulb on. And we know that the behaviors, two main behaviors really have an effect on your risk for melanoma. And that's sunbathing and sunburning. So if there were two rules that I tell my patients, I do not want you to do is sunbathe and sunburning. Okay, there is no such thing as safe sunbathing. Sunbathing is gratuitous sun exposure. You don't need it. Um, yes, we do need a little bit of ultraviolet radiation to, to make our vitamin D, which is important, and that's a whole topic in itself. But we, we don't need as much as we think we need. And then the other is sunburning. Now, nobody goes out of their way to get sunburnt, or if you do, you're really, really silly these days when we know the dangers of sunburn. So it's usually accidental sunburn. And I often give the example of the mother with the children at the beach. The mother's incredibly careful with the children at the beach, putting on their sun protection factor, getting them into the right ultraviolet resistance swimsuits, etc. But in the 15 to 20 to 30 minutes that she spends doing this, she's actually exposed herself unawares. Or the other one is the Irish goodbye. I always remember uh, one of my most favorite patients who was neurotic about sun exposure arrived in for her melanoma follow-up A beetroot red face. And she had been sitting in the garden with a friend under a shade. They'd been very, very good about it because she, and she hadn't put on the, her sun protection factor, which was fair enough because she was sitting in the shade. But of course, she did the Irish goodbye. She went to the front door to say goodbye to the friend. This was pre-COVID and said the Irish goodbye for half an hour at the front, front door. I forgot about the sun exposure. So the two rules, if you like, that you can actually change in your own behavior 
is no sunburning, no sunbathing. So those are your two behaviors. The ultraviolet radiation then is getting to know about ultraviolet radiation and when are times when it's low and when times when it's high and choosing times to do things outdoors because it is important that you do that, choosing the right times to do it and the right ways to do it. Those are about the only things you can actually alter. You can't alter your genetics, you can't alter your age, but you can alter your behavior and some of your environment. Just to circle back to what you were talking about with vitamin D, something that worries me as a dermatology nurse this year is there has been a lot of information about getting plenty of vitamin D to combat the effects of COVID, for example. So a couple of weeks ago, I seen um, on the news, you know, there was pictures of sunshine and, you know, get out there and make sure you're getting your vitamin D. And I know, again, it's a whole subject by itself, but what's your take on vitamin D and exposing your skin to to sun? Yeah. And again, I'm sure it is like every every other condition. You follow grandmothers advice that moderation uh, in things that you do. Vitamin D is really complex and the more I read about vitamin D and the more I look into it, the more I realize that I don't actually, we don't really know that much about it. So how one person's re- skin reacts in the, in the sun to vitamin D is different from another. How one person absorbs the vitamin D is different from another. And so again, it's that sort of like there's a, there's a whole range of different responses. We know from some of the studies, for example, that actually about 20 minutes of summer sun on your arms and your face will give you more than sufficient uh, vitamin D for your particular needs. Even on the back of your hands and your face on a summer's day will give you your minimum requirements. And then we do get some from our diet as well. Um, So again, like everything, I think it's sensible. Um, It's about being sensible and saying, actually, I'm going to go out for that walk. It will take me an hour. So I'm going to put some sun protection factor on because I'm going to be out much longer. And we know as well that if you use sun protection factor, you still get some vitamin D production. So it's not that it it decreases it at all. And there's a lot of fear about using sun protection factor. And as a result, you know, people getting vitamin D deficient, but really nobody uses that amount of sun protection factor that correctly to be able to completely block the radiation and to be aware that again, it is varying. There's a, I remember a lovely study many, many years ago, which looked at lifeguards. I think it was in, uh, in, in Hawaii. It may have been a different island, but half of the actual pale white skinned lifeguards guards were vitamin D deficient and they were all out. So there's a variety. So never only, you know, don't don't rely just on your, your sun exposure to get your vitamin D. You can also use it in diet. And now there's so many vitamin D supplements as well. A little bit of sun is not a bad thing. It's just a lot of sun is. I was interested in your patient there. You had a patient who, it was a follow-up for a melanoma. When do you actually see your patients? in the first instance? The first time I ever meet any of my patients um, is when they've been referred. Uh, and that's what usually what will happen is your own general practitioner will refer you in to uh, one of the diagnostic centers. So in Ireland, there are uh, currently, I think it's 13 diagnostic centers for um, for suspicious pigmented lesion clinics. And they're in all the, uh, the major hospitals that are associated with dermatology or plastic surgery. So that's the first step is your own general practitioner will send you in to um, a dermatologist or a plastic surgeon. And it's usually a dermatologist first off. So they get referred in to one of my clinics. Usually we look at the letter and we will decide from the letter how urgent it is. And if the GP is very worried, they'll tell us that information and that will allow us to prioritize appropriately. So, you know, if somebody's coming in, I'd like to have my moles checked. I'm, I'm not, a, you know, they're, they're not aware of any changes. That's not as urgent as somebody says, please see this you know, 60 year old lady with a new mole that is changing. So before we ever see the patient, we'll see the referral letter and then they'll come and see us in a clinic. So when you come to your clinic and that may be in one of the public or the private hospitals, depending where you're being seen, the dermatologist will see you before you go, just to be aware that you will more than likely be required to have what's called a full skin examination, because most people they'll go and they'll say, okay, you know, there's just this mole on my arm. That's the one I'm worried about. 
But actually, as dermatologists, we do like to see all of the skin. And that's a good, usually a great help to us to make a decision because we are using your own moles as the, as the control, if you like. So we're actually using it to compare one against the other. So that's the first thing is be prepared to strip down to your underwear. Don't be shocked if you're asked. And most dermatologists would, would require that in some places, or if you're very uncomfortable with it, it's okay to say, listen, I just want to have that mole looked at. But even, even allowing them, if, they, if you have one on your left arm, even allowing your dermatologist to have a look at the right arm, you know, and look at your face, that, that, that really helpful to us to make a diagnosis. I often say to people that, you know, an obvious melanoma is an obvious melanoma from the end of the room. You can tell it but we're driving to get the really early ones that are really sort of can be very difficult to diagnose visually. And remember, that's how dermatologists make their, their diagnosis visually. We don't use any strange and startling machines. We, there are some that, that, that can be used for very uh, for particular ones, but usually it's your dermatologist's brain and your dermatologist's eyes um, that will make the diagnosis, accompanied with the use of a thing called a dermatoscope, which is like a magnifying glass with a particular type of light source and a particular type. And they'll, that allows us to look at higher magnification. So that's the first thing is be prepared to strip down. Um, and if you're not prepared to strip down, don't feel bad about it. You know, you can decline that if you want. But I would advise if you've got in there and you've got a dermatologist in front of you, get them to check. I think that's fantastic advice because patients that come in do get a shock actually when you ask them, you know, or you offer them a full skin check. And what I say to all my patients as well is we're actually just looking at your skin. We're not looking at you. And that might sound unusual, but we're not looking at bodies effectively. Very nerdily, we're, you're looking at skin. But always take that that offer up because, again, we often pick up um, skin lesions that are not the original referral that has come in. So somebody might come in with something on their, their arm, but it actually you might spot a melanoma or a non-melanoma type skin cancer on their leg, for example. So it is a very good opportunity to get expert eyes on as well. When you do diagnose a melanoma, Patrick, what's the next step? So the next step from then is excising that area. All right. So actually removing it. For suspicious pigmented lesions, we tend to like to excise the entire lesion uh, or the entire of the mole. In Ones that are either quite large or in areas where you don't necessarily want to do that, you may take a sample of it, what we call a biopsy or a sample of it. And those would be certain subtypes of, of pigmented lesions. So if we're not quite sure if it's a thing called a lentigo maligna or a lentigo simplex, these are sort of like, they're little brown marks and they can be quite large and you don't want to cut the whole thing out. You might take one or two samples or biopsies of it. The first thing that you'll get done is the excision of the mole, or in some cases, moles, if there are one or two that they're, or more that they're suspicious of. And that's done under a local anesthetic. It may be done on the same day uh, in the same clinic, or you may be brought back on a different day, but it's usually within a week or two that they would bring you back in. If, if, if the dermatologist has a high level of suspicion that this is something, they'll act very fast on it. And that's in a, usually within a couple of weeks. All right. I often say to people when we're talking about time, time is important for much more advanced melanomas, but actually for the very early melanomas, the vast majority of them are quite slow growing. That's why, for example, one year you can look at a mole, it looks fine. And then, uh, you know, a year later it's changed or, or indeed any other part of your, your skin. And remember that melanomas don't only arise in moles. In fact, the majority of melanomas arise on normal skin. 
So it's something that may look like your mole or look like a mole or look like a growth, uh, but not necessarily a mole that's been there all your life. Once you've had, you, you've had the lesion excised, it's a local anesthetic. So a bit like going to the dentist and having a filling that give you the local anesthetic to numb you up. You have it numbed up and they cut it out and they may stitch it up and stitch it closed there and then, or they may leave it open. Um, which is also uh, can occur. And don't be worried if they leave a wound open, we're designed to heal with open wounds. And then that is sent off for analysis to a histopathologist. Okay, so that will be sent off and that is then processed and cut and stained and read, and then a diagnosis is made. And the pathologist is the person who makes the diagnosis histopathologically or on the actual specimen. And guided by the by what the dermatologist feels. So, for example, a dermatologist will say, you know, definite melanoma or suspicious for melanoma or probably abnormal mole but not cancerous. So, a lot of there's a lot of a communication uh, between your dermatologist or plastic surgeon and the pathologist as well. And sometimes, if you get a, a report back on on a that doesn't agree with what you think, you'll have a discussion um, on that. And that that's one of the roles of, say, for example. A histopathology conference or a multidisciplinary team conference where you, you don't necessarily um, completely agree. If I could make one comment there, that sounds really reassuring to me and it should sound really reassuring to everybody who's listening that it isn't just one person making a decision about you know the treatment plan and the options available. Yeah, I think it's really important. And I think that's just generally across cancer generally is that, you know, it's never just one person. It's a whole range of people that are involved, the dermatologist, the specialist nurse, the pathologist, the, the surgery nurses, you know, a radiation oncologist, oncologist, plastic surgeon. There's a lot of people involved. If you, you know, if you think it's just the one person that you're seeing in the clinic, there's probably about 25 people behind them supporting them. And that's really important to know. And and also I the, the, the whole... Um, sort of a professional attitude now is that it is a multidisciplinary team of people who look after you, even at the very early stages or uh, if your uh, cancer is more advanced. So that, that is important. And it, that's why communication is really important within a, within a team. And you're part of that, by the way, as the patient. You know, you're part of that. And I'd say that history is still really important. You know, you can tell your dermatologist quite a lot that will be helpful to them. You know, part of the things we said we were talking, if you were coming to see you or coming to see me in the clinic, you know, just thinking about it is really important. So thinking, well, when did this start to change? When did I notice it? Who noticed it? When did I last have a photograph of that that I noticed? Or was my was that on my cheek, you know, in the photograph two years ago? No, it wasn't. Even thinking back in your in your family, because we, it's important to know, for example, if there's a family history of melanoma. So a lot of people mix up skin cancer and melanoma is the same thing, and they're not particularly. So you know, find out if there's a history of skin cancer in your family and your parents or siblings or grandparents, find out exactly if at all possible what it was, because that's really helpful. And um, if you come in and you say, actually, there are two members of my family who've had melanoma and five members that have had non-melanoma, well, that's going to make the dermatologist a little bit more sort of sit upright and go, mm, okay, maybe slightly higher risk here. You know, I might play it a bit safer. So find out what your family history is as well when you're coming to see them. And then the other thing that is really important is your son history to some extent. For example, we know that if you grew up overseas uh, nearer the equator, so if you grew up, say, in Africa or uh, in sunnier climes, that you are at a slightly higher risk than if you are, that if you grew up, say, for example, in Ireland, if you've got a lot of sun early in your life, you're at a slightly higher risk than those who don't. 
And if you think about it, that's fairly, fairly sort of common sense that, you, you know, you're exposed to something very early in your life that takes many, many years and even decades to have a nasty effect on you. Well, if you do it when you're two or three or four, instead of when you're 16, 17, 18, or 20 or seven or 50, that lead-in period is different. So where did you grow up? How much sun exposure did you get? Were you from a very outdoor active you know, family? Did you go on lots of sun holidays? Do you remember lots of bad sunburns? You know, And everybody, particularly if you have the typical Celtic skin, will have burnt at some stage in their life. I, I, you know, just, I've never met anyone who hasn't had a burn. So just be aware of those. Sorry, I, di- I, I, I digress. Back to when you've seen me. So usually then you will come back for your result. And that might vary. If the suspicion is very low, sometimes you're given the option, would you like to have a telephone follow-up? Because we appreciate that, you know, it can be difficult for people to get into hospital and it's time-consuming and current situation. So you may be offered a, a telephone conversation, uh, conversation. And don't be afraid to say yes if, you, if it would suit you. But just think as well that if it was bad news, where would you like to be and what sort of time and who would you like to be around? because you might need somebody around. If you're in the middle of work or in the middle of the train and you get bad news, you're going to be able to take that. So just consider that. Sometimes it's worth the effort to actually turn, you know, come, come back to the clinic. And that's usually a couple of weeks. It will depend on the turnaround time of the specimen um, that they've taken off. Um, I know where we work, I have a two-week turnaround time. That gives me a little bit of extra space. And sometimes when it's difficult to make the diagnosis, the histopathologist needs a little bit more time to do a few more stains or a few more cuts. So these things, again, take time. They can be done much quicker if possible, but I'm a great believer that sometimes haste makes mistakes, particularly in melanoma, which can be very difficult to diagnose um, on histopathology. You want to take your time and it's not going to make a huge difference. We know that the most important surgery to get done urgently is that first excision that first time that takes it once you take that tumor off and remember we're cutting the whole thing off in one go that's probably the only one that needs to be done relatively quickly the rest of the things that can happen we know over can take a period of time and even it can be a number of weeks it's not days it can be weeks um uh, so don't don't get worried if you get seen and they say i'm suspicious about this i'll bring you back next week for the excision of that you have that time to play with. It's nasty for the mind and for your well-being, but actually just physically be aware that it may not make any difference at all. So you'll come back uh, if you do come back and the dermatologist with or without the cancer nurse specialist, so skin cancer nurse specialist who may be there, will see you and will give you your diagnosis. I always ask people to come with somebody. And the reason for that is um, uh, it's very difficult to remember everything that is said, particularly when you're nervous. You know, if you have two heads in the room, uh, it's really helpful because at least you have someone you can talk to. Did he say that? Did he say that? I can't remember that. No, he didn't say that. On that return visit, bring somebody with you. All right. It's really important. Someone that you know will will listen and be supportive. Even take notes. I love it when I see a patient bring out a pen and take notes because then I know they're actually jotting down those really important bits of information. And sometimes we will give you all of that written down anyway, you know, and we'll give you some information leaflets about, um, about the melanoma. And that really is usually that, that second visit is just the, is giving you the diagnosis. And there are certain things that they will talk you through. We might go through those. And then we'll then talk about what the next pathway is. I think it's such important information that the process in the laboratory when the specimen goes down there, because often patients feel, oh, it's just hanging around in a jar and nothing is happening. But actually, a lot of things are happening over that two or three or sometimes even four week period that you have to wait. And I'm sure it's awful when patients do have skin surgery and they're 
you know, they're they're hanging around effectively waiting for this phone call or result. But there is a process that's happening there for you, although it can feel torturous for patients having to wait for that length of time. But I think it's 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 really important to get it right. Patrick, when you get your result back for your patient, um, what's on that result? So what's on that piece of paper or what's on the computer screen when the melanoma result comes back? Okay, well, I suppose you're going to be coming back and, and it's going to be one of three things. It was a completely a, a, a normal mole and there's nothing to worry about and it's usually completely removed. So that's the good news. Then you have, well, it was an abnormal mole, but not a cancerous one. And what we would call a dysplastic uh, nevus, that's the medical word for it, just means it's abnormal. Um, and it can be very slightly abnormal, but to very severely abnormal. But it, it, again, would not be classified as cancerous. And then you have your third thing, which is where it has now come back as a malignant melanoma. I use the word malignant melanoma, melanoma, in the same way. I never actually realized that until one of my patients told me that they'd never realized that was the same thing. Malignant melanoma and melanoma is the same thing. Uh, we tend to use the word melanoma. The first thing is the type of melanoma that you have. And again, there's a couple of different types and we'll give you that information, but it's not really that important from what your next path is going to be. So commonest one would be superficial spreading malignant melanoma. Then you've got nodular, acral, which is your, the ones that are your hand and your feet. One called a lentigo maligna or lentigo maligna melanoma, which is usually sort of a slow growing one, more commonly found in older people than in younger people, but can be found anywhere. And then there's a couple of other rarer forms, but I'll tell you the type of melanoma. And it's usually going to be superficial spreading or nodular melanoma. And then we're going to talk about probably the, the bit of information that I give everybody is the Breslow depth. Um, and that's Breslow, B-R-E-S-L-O-W. So the Breslow depth, and that is probably the most important prognostic factor. Now, what do I mean by prognostic factor? What's the thing that's going to affect your outcome that gives you the most, most evidence about what's likely to happen and what you need to have done? So that's what I want to use the word prognosis. That's what I mean by that. So your Breslow depth is, is the first thing. And that is how deep is the melanoma? And if you think about it, your melanoma arises in your tanning cells and your tanning cells are at the, the junction of the top layer of your skin, your epidermis, and the rest of the skin, the dermis. And they, they lie along there. And melanoma is a cancer of your tanning cells. Molds are made of tanning cells, but you have tanning cells all over your skin. In fact, you have tanning cells in places the sun ain't ever going to shine, like your brain and your bowel and your gut. And so you have them everywhere. Those tanning cells one of them becomes cancerous and it then begins to grow into a melanoma. If it's just in the very top layer of the skin, that's what we call in situ, okay? So it hasn't actually left the top layer of the skin. It hasn't gone into the deeper part of the skin, the dermis. So in situ means that it's almost, it's almost, and I do use the word precancerous because it's not yet invaded. It's still at that sort of early stage where it's just in situ. It's, being, it's in the skin, the top layer of the skin where it should be normally. And then you have it where it becomes invasive. And I often think, you know, that the best way that people sort of understand it is if you look at, um, say, your, your cervical smear, you can have an abnormal cervical smear, which would be your abnormal mole. You would then have very early changes in your, in your cervical, CIN 1, 2, and 3 is what the medics would call it. And that's where it's actually just still in that, the, the area it's meant to be. And then it becomes invasive and then you're into cervical cancer. And that's like any cancer. But where it's, in, where it's in, in the skin, we can call it in situ, it's very early. And as it begins to invade deeper into the dermis, 
which is the, the, the bit of the skin underneath the epidermis that holds your blood vessels and your lymphatics and all of these things, as it goes deeper and deeper and deeper, it's more likely to hit something like a lymphatic or a blood vessel, and also more likely to hit a bigger lymphatic or a bigger blood vessel as it goes further and further down. So the deeper it is down into your skin, the, the more likely it, it is to have spread, even though that's unlikely in the vast majority of melanomas. That's essentially the way to look at it. So the thicker it is, the depth of the Breslau uh, invasion, the more likely that it is going to have, have invaded and spread somewhere else. Uh, so that's the one bit of information I get everyone to make sure they know is what is the Breslau depth of your melanoma? Because that will then decide, A, what's your likely outcome? And B, what pathway you're going to take? And that pathway is, you know, what type of investigations or surgery, et cetera, you're going to need. And finally, then, what does it mean long term? What's it going to mean for me? What's the likelihood of this recurring? All of those type of things. So we know, for example, in situ melanoma, it doesn't spread anywhere. It really can't because it's just it, it hasn't become invasive. When your melanoma is less than 0.5 millimeters, so half a millimeter, when it's less than half a millimeter, it's highly unlikely to have spread. There's one lovely big Scottish study which looked at that, they didn't have anyone uh, with their melanoma had spread. So that's why the big push with melanoma is to get it early, 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 because the thinner it is, the less likely it is to have spread. So that's the bit of information to be given. And then there's other things that are, are that will give you, will, will sort of uh, inform your dermatologist and your pathologist and your plastic surgeon. And one of those things is what we call ulceration. And that is where I feel like the tumor has begun to break down. And again, that's sort of, that's not a good, not a good uh, sign in the sense that if the tumor is breaking down, it's probably already breaking into blood vessels. And also the other one is then whether or not it's invaded into blood vessels or nerves or lymphatics. And they're like the, they're like the highways or the roadways of the body. That's how things can spread around or along those. So we look at those and every melanoma report will come with all of those listed for you. And then finally, a thing called Clark's level, which is again, just anatomically where in the skin it is, but the Breslow depth, if you remember one thing, it's the Breslow depth. That's what you really need to know about your melanoma. And that's what your, your dermatologist will, will decide. So that is, that is what will happen when you come back to your dermatologist. They'll tell you that. And there's two possibilities. One, they'll have discussed this at the multidisciplinary team meeting before they see you, or they'll, they'll discuss it after they see you. Gosh, there's so much information there, and I think people will learn so much from this. So we're so grateful for your expertise. You mentioned tanning cells being everywhere in the body. Could you tell us about maybe some unusual sites where melanoma may be found that people it just wouldn't enter their minds? Yeah, so we actually have those tanning cells. They're called melanocytes, and they uh, they develop from the same place as our central nervous system and brain develops from the fetus. So they're actually spread. If you think about nerves, they're all throughout the body. Well, so are melanocytes. They're actually everywhere in us. There's an area in our brain, for example, which is called the substantia nigra, nigra meaning black, and there's melanocytes there. But we have them in our bowel, we have them in our gut, we have them in the back of our eye, we have them under our nails. So we have melanocytes everywhere. There are a number of melanomas that are diagnosed every year, what's called melanoma of unknown origin, um, where we don't actually know where the primary tumor was. Of course, we always think skin because the vast majority of melanomas arise in the skin, but you can have melanomas that arise elsewhere. And that can be really difficult diagnosis to make. I've seen it in, in the lung, brain, etc. Eye melanoma is, a, is, a, is a, again, a retinal melanoma, is a subset, very different from the skin melanoma. 
again, rare, but it is something that, that's there. And in fact, you can have moles at the back of your eyes without knowing about it, but they're normal. If you've ever had an eye test, they'll probably mention that you have a mole on your eye and then you'll be followed. But yeah, you can, set, you can get those tanning cells absolutely everywhere. So uh, just be aware of that. So if somebody had a melanoma in their eye, would they see a dermatologist or would they follow up an eye doctor or an ophthalmologist? It's usually an ophthalmologist they would see and they would be the person that would be managing them sort of long term. But as usually as part of that, they would be seen by a dermatologist at some point. Anyone who is ever diagnosed with a melanoma should be seen by a dermatologist for a full, full skin check. And the reason for that is there is a, a, a section about between 5 to 10%, depending on what sort of articles you read, of people who will have a second melanoma at the same time, or a third melanoma, it's called synchronous melanoma. So you'd have two at the same time. And then there's also the risk that once you've had one melanoma, you're going to get a second or a third or a fourth melanoma. That risk, again, is between 5 to 10%. Um, and the highest risk times in the first two years, but it can occur any time in your life. So once you've had one melanoma excised, you just puts you into a slightly higher risk category of getting another one. The only good thing about that is you'll find that you know those second and third melanomas are usually caught very early because the patient is now really aware. You you know you're aware you're part of your melanoma follow up, for example even if you have sort of very low risk melanomas, is with your dermatologist simply to pick up that second melanoma if it is going to occur. It's not about your melanoma coming back, the same one coming back. This is about a second new one. And Patrick, do you find that people are disappointed, well, disappointed in inverted commas, if they have melanoma in situ, for example, or a small melanoma, let's call it, and the treatment is just their surgery and that's it. There's no chemotherapy, there's no fancy PET scans, no MRIs. Do you find the patient worried that they don't get enough treatment for their melanoma sometimes yes I, that's a very good point Celine you do and that's part of the part of the, the consultation is explaining why you shouldn't why well, you don't need it you don't even don't even need a blood test uh, for the vast majority of melanomas and you don't need any scans and that's because when they're caught early the chances of them spread are so tiny the difference between melanoma, I suppose, and, and, and skin cancers and cancers elsewhere in the body is elsewhere in the body, they have to be a particular size before you begin to notice them. They have to have to be, a, you have to have a lump you can feel or a lump that blocks something or causes bleeding, you know, so they have to be a particular size. Whereas in dermatology, because your skin is right there in front of your eyes, you can pick them up really early before it's had a chance to do anything. So we know from the years of studying melanoma, that actually doing those blood tests or doing those scans or, or ultrasounds, or it's of no benefit. It doesn't actually, it doesn't actually make any difference to you. Uh, and that's where we're sort of looking at those big statistical studies. And then it's different, of course, if it's more aggressive uh, or rather more spread elsewhere. But if you've got that early melanoma, then yeah, you don't need anything more done. You know, the only thing you need to do is your own lifestyle modification and possibly vitamin D supplementation if you're vitamin D deficient and then learning how to do a full skin examination. Those are the things that you do. But you're right. People sort of think it's a cancer. I need chemo and I need a scan. But in fact, you, you don't with the vast majority of melanomas. And just reflecting back on something you mentioned earlier about the causative factors of melanoma, would you see um, patients coming to you now having used some beds and that that would be the cause of melan their melanoma? Would you see more of that now, do you think? Interestingly, uh, and I've been a dermatologist now for 25 years or so, I actually am seeing less in younger, in younger people. I think, uh, I think I, I use the analogy of the tan no longer being socially acceptable. 
certainly it's a bit like smoking. It's now socially unacceptable. And you can, you can as a dermatologist, you look at someone in their 20, 25, 26 years, they're young, and you look at them and you know immediately they've been using sunbeds. You can tell by the aging. There's always that small group of people, you know, who are addicted to the tan or the color of their skin, etc. And that is a, a you know, tanorexia is a, is a condition. But I actually don't see it as, as often as I would. I've seen it more in young men, interestingly, than I have in the past. And I do think that that's, you know, I, I, that's part of the whole body image thing and shift um, uh, into men being, uh, you know, needing to, to live up to these unrealistic standards that women had to live up to for the last few centuries. So I do see, I do see a few more, you know, and it's a question I, I constantly forget to ask men, um, uh, you know, young men. I, I, I do forget to ask it. Um, but you, you, if you do, you, you'll find you'll be quite surprised. It's very interesting. We actually did a study from Sligo um, looking at teenagers and some bad usage in Sligo and in Dublin. And the results were that actually no teenagers in Sligo were using them, interestingly. But in Dublin, there were. But actually, it was it was males that were using the sunbeds. And again, it was reflecting on a social change. You know, they wanted the, you know, the whole aesthetics, the teeth whitening, the, the tan skin and weren't aware. And again, you just don't profile them as sunbed users is right so it's something to watch for it's a behavioral change though isn't it over time because like when i was growing up tan was something that like made you look good it made you feel good and nowadays as you say like somebody might say to you now oh my god look at the damage you've done to your skin as opposed to say oh my god you look great that tan really suits you you know so things have changed and people's behaviors have changed and attitudes have changed and i think i think you know the sort of the use of fake tan particularly in women is a lot more acceptable and is a lot more visually sort of norm but again the, the use in fake tan is not acceptable in, in in males as yet you know it sort of doesn't and so so i think there is that dichotomy and that's why we're probably seeing more and of course i mean my 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 pet hate is um some beds in gyms i just cannot understand why something associated with health i would just i like to ask would they mind if i lit up a cigarette <laughs> you know in the middle of their you know in the middle of the treadmill i just can't i can't understand how gyms have some beds but anyway let's not go down that road <laughs> so patrick you have been so informative and it's always a delight to work with you thank you so much and a real privilege as well for both celine and yourself to be on i suppose before we close off i know you are renowned for teaching patients and educating them about you know their melanomas if they've had a diagnosis how they should look after themselves going forward so if you could maybe tell us a little bit about that i suppose um i only ever have two rules no sunbathing no sunburning that's, those are the two rules okay and that's the first thing the second thing then is um get to know your skin it's right there in front of you get to know your skin like you know your wardrobe just get to know your skin be prepared for things to change and you have a reference book right in front of you your skin if you if you're looking at something on your skin and you're not sure look elsewhere on your skin and see do you have anything similar to it things change on the body and they alter, but you know, they'll change and alter in generally a symmetrical way. Nature tries to become symmetrical in everything. We are trying to have two ears, two eyes, you know, two nostrils. We, we like nature likes symmetry. So look at something that if you're not sure and see, is it relatively symmetrical? It doesn't have to be perfect because, you know, apart from you know, Brad Pitt, really nature has not got, you know, perfect symmetry. It's something that's approaching sort of symmetry is what you're looking for. And look and see, do you have others like it on your skin? And then probably the strongest one is what I call the ugly duckling sign. And the ugly duckling sign is the one thing on your skin which is completely different from everything else. So it's the thing that is completely different. 
And that's the thing that you should keep an eye on. With most melanomas, we have some time. Um, and that's the thing is that, the, you know, particularly in early melanomas, they can be very slow growing. You do have some time. And we all get lumps and bumps and things get darker and things bleed and things get itchy. But actually, that's normal. It's when they persist in doing that. So I often say, don't really start to get anxious unless something's been there for more than six to eight weeks and is continuing to change. The two rules, no sunbathing, no sunburning. Look at your skin and get to know it. Use it as your own reference book and look to see if you have anything. And keep that ugly duckling in mind, okay? Um, just that's the one thing. And then we all have technology. I think, you know, there are, our, our camera phone is amazing. Um, you know, if you, I can't remember what one mole looks like one, one day to the next. If you're worried about it, take a photograph of it and go back a couple of weeks later and do this repetitively. I use, um, I use a sort of a, a, a technique of um, uh, the monthly, the monthly check. And I think this is generally um, throughout health generally, whether it's um, testicular check or breast check or the monthly check. Um, do it the same day as your birthday every month or do it the first day of the month. Just five minutes, strip down, good light, mirror, have a look. Nobody can see their back correctly with two mirrors. Get someone else to have a look at it for you. You know, your, your mom, your dad, your boyfriend, your next door neighbor, whichever. But just, you know, get to do it. If you're doing it, if you're thinking to do it once a month, you might, because we all have busy lives, you might actually do it once every three months. And that's often enough. So build that into your sort of your check, your MOT, your, you know, just, your, your, you know, and, and do, do it all the same time. And then the final thing is, and if you look at most, most things, they'll talk about the ABCD. And I can think that can be very, very worrying um, and slightly misleading, but it's a good way to remember it. A is for asymmetry. B is for a very irregular border. C is for three or more colors or unusual colors. D is for diameter, bigger than a shirt button. And then there's an E, F, and G, which we won't go into, and they're for a different form of melanoma. But they're sort of their little guides. But just because you have a mole that's asymmetrical or just because you have a mole that has unusual colors doesn't mean it's anything nasty. So that's really the, 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 the hub. The ugly duckling, watch your sun exposure, get to know your skin, and, and have someone that to help you, help you, you know, keep an eye on things. Uh, that's really important. And then if you're worried, just go get it checked. It really is, you know, so many people come in to see me and say, I'm so sorry to be bothering you about this. And I'm only thrilled that I'm saying it's nothing. So get it checked. And if you're, and the person to check it with is your, is your doctor. Um, and just say, listen, what do you think of that? The ones that, are, that, that we're not sure about, they'll send on. They'll send on. Uh, and that's, that's, those are the most important things. So, you know, be proactive, really. Be proactive would be my most one. Patrick is wonderful and so insightful. I've enjoyed listening to you so much, honestly. But I, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm smiling here. As Irish people, Irish people are wonderful. All our patients are wonderful. And they almost apologize for not having skin cancer. They come in, I'm so sorry I wasted your time. It is not a waste of time. It's never a waste of time. The majority of lesions that come into clinic are normal. That's okay. At least people are watching and looking and being referred. And there's no problem with coming in with something that's normal because you can always get educated. So it's fantastic. So we've learned so much. We now know what a dermatologist is. We know what melanoma is. We know what causes it, risk factors. We know how to look after our skin. We know we shouldn't use sunbeds. And we also learned um, and answered a huge amount of questions for people. I would like to thank you so much for being with us tonight. It's been a privilege. So that's all for this week. We would like to say a big thank you to our guests, to our co-presenter, Celine, our sponsors Novartis, and of course to you for listening in. 
this podcast comes out fortnightly. So make sure to like and subscribe and tune in next time to continue on this journey with us, learning and understanding more about melanoma. Until then, here's a sneak peek of next week's episode. Historically, chemotherapy was used to treat melanoma, but now that's very, very uncommon is chemotherapy would be used for melanoma because to be very simple about it, it doesn't work. It took many years to discover that.